Thessalonians chapter 4, and if you're using the black Bible provided for you in the back, that's on page 987. Again, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as we read, let me remind you, we're reading God's Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Thank you. You can have a seat. Amen. Well, today begins the official uh, beginning of Advent. Uh, The word Advent means uh, coming or arrival. And in Advent, we specifically look forward to this moment of Jesus' return. Uh, And uh, the reason we do that is because we know that the first arrival of the Messiah, of King Jesus, was Christmas. That's what we celebrate. Uh, It probably wasn't actually December 25th, but that's when we celebrate it. And so on Christmas, we commemorate the, the coming of the Lord Jesus. And Advent really is this moment to anticipate his second coming. That he's coming back. He's coming again. And so uh, historically, over the centuries of the church, the church has used this season not just to celebrate the first coming of Jesus, but to look ahead and to imagine sort of this way, how would you want to live if you knew that Jesus Christ was returning on December 25th? So that was his first coming. If you knew he was coming again, how would that change things? In fact, this whole idea is built into this season that we call it right now, right? What do we say this? We'll say, oh, like I've, I've talked to a few people that go, oh, I want to get together, but I got to wait until after the holidays, right? This is the time of the holidays. Think about that word for a moment, a moment. holidays, the holy days, that's what this is about. This is here about holy days, that these days are set apart. They're set to be holy. And yet holiness seems to be the last thing on our minds during these days, right? And this is mostly about how do you get a great deal? How do you get your wrapping done? How do you get everything bought? Um, how many of you are already done with your Christmas shopping? Wow. You guys are unbelievable. Or you just don't have very many people you're buying anything for. But either way, I mean, all that's on our mind. Right? We got food on our mind. We got, I mean, like the last thing we're thinking about is how can we be consecrated, as set apart, as distinct, as, as holy before the Lord. To live a life that's separate of sin and that's filled with good. That's what it is to be holy. These are holy days. And so the, the key question that we're asking during this season as a church is how should we live in light of his coming? We told you that the book of 1 Thessalonians was all about the second coming of Jesus, living in light of that coming. Uh, we begin uh, chapter 4, and, and then we'll head into chapter 5 over these next few weeks, these last four weeks of Advent, 
really you're going to look specifically at what is a life that's pleasing to God in light of this coming day of the Lord. How should we live in light of his coming? So we're going to look to God's word for the answer to that. Uh, Just to review where we've been in this book, in case you're newer with us or you're catching up here or maybe you missed a week or two, um, this whole first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians has been like one big introduction by the Apostle Paul. Uh, We looked the very first week at the Apostle Paul, who he was, saw that he was a persecutor of the church. He was a a Jewish zealot who was out to destroy Christianity, um, had his world turned upside down when he met Jesus and began a whole new life of being devoted to the Lord. And uh, one of the churches that he started was this church in Thessalonica. He started this church in the midst of lots of affliction, it says um, in uh, chapter 1, um, verse 6, it says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. So this is a church that's suffering. And all through this book, uh, that Paul is encouraging them so far. So this whole thing's been a, just one big encouragement. He's told them about the example of ministry that they've had and encouraged them that they've endured through pain. That's what we looked at last week. That idea that you grow through the word and you go through pain, don't you? We looked at that. And so he begins, interestingly, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, finally, then, brothers. Any of you know people like this? You're on the phone, you know, they're about to sign off, and it's like, oh, whoa, 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 wait, wait, one more thing. And then you can go, oh, okay, yeah, all right, well, you, know, you, you hear the code words that are like, I want to get off the phone now, right? All right, uh, yeah, well, uh, okay, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you later. And it's like, oh, wait, wait, wait one more thing. That's kind of what this passage is going to be. Because he says, finally, that he's going to go on for, for two more chapters. We're going to look four more weeks at these final instructions here. Um, and here's what he says, chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So here we get kind of the first inkling of of one of the reasons that Paul's writing. We've seen he's writing to give them encouragement. Now he's encouraging them to keep doing what they've been doing, to in light of the future coming of Jesus, that they had received from us how they ought to walk and to please God, that they would keep doing that. They would do so more and more. Or maybe your translation says that you would excel still more, that they would do that. He says, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, saying, we already gave you this instruction. What I'm going to tell you is nothing new, and it shouldn't surprise you. We already gave it to you, and it's through the Lord Jesus, meaning like this has his stamp of approval. And then here's what it is. This was really the big idea for for our study here this morning is in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The, The big idea here is that the will of God is that you would grow in holiness. The, the, the will of God for you is that you would grow in holiness. Now the word holiness, again, means to be set apart from sin, but also filled with everything that is good. So it's not just abstaining from what's evil, but it's also doing what is good. That is what it is to be holy. Another word that theologians will use is the idea of sanctification. Right? That's the, the word that's used there in verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, interestingly, I don't know why the translators do this, but that exact same Greek word in verse 3 is translated sanctification. In verse 4, it's translated holiness. And in verse 7, it's translated holiness. But it's the same word. 
So we get a little bit of what this word means. It's, it's sanctification is this idea of holiness. It's defined this way, a personal dedication to the interests of God. That's a good definition, I think. A personal dedication to the interests of God. So the things that God's interested in, you're interested in. The things that God is repulsed by, you're repulsed by. That's what it is to grow in holiness. And here's what he says here in verse 3. This is the will of God. Some of you are often wondering, what's God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? Maybe just as I look around here, I know a number of you, you have faced just recently or you're in the middle of or you think you're maybe about to face some tough decisions. What do I do? Do I take that job? Do I go there? Do I pursue this? Is the door open? Is it not? Is it? And, and, and a lot of you is wondering, what's God's will? What is God wanting me to do? So, some of you, you never ask that question. You know, I don't know why, I don't know why this is issue. I just do what I want. Um, it's a good question. Some of you are in the middle of really wrestling through that. What should I do? And, and when we think about the will of God, we go, what's the decision I should make? Here's what this passage is saying. This passage is saying, regardless of the decisions that you might make, regardless of whether that door's open or closed, whether the job is there or not, whether you should move or not, here's what we know for sure God's will is. Our holiness. In the midst of all of it, whether you stay or whether you go, whether you kick down the door, whether you wait because it's closed, God wants you to be holy. God wants you to be personally dedicated to his interests. That's what God wants for your life. And this is not because God is just on a power trip to try to get people to be as much like him as he can so he can go, yeah, I'm better than you. This is because God knows that the best way to live is the way of holiness. God knows that to be personally dedicated to his interests, to be separate from sin, and to be fully invested in what is good and righteous and true, he knows that that's best for us. He knows that that's what's right, and that is his will. This same word, holiness, is used in Hebrews 12. Uh, We looked at this passage, I think, when we were in the the study on... um, the hard sayings of Jesus. We, we touched on this just a bit. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for the holiness. That's that same word, that personal dedication to the interests of God. Strive for that, it says. Strive for it. I mean, there's some action to it. There's, there's an aggressiveness here. This is where uh, Jerry Bridges, in his really uh, excellent book, um, I would highly recommend it to you, called The Pursuit of Holiness. This is the whole place he gets that, that title. The Pursuit, the Striving After Holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what is he saying there, the author of Hebrews? Is the author of Hebrews there saying that if you aren't personally dedicated to the interests of God, you're not really a great person, then you don't get to go to heaven? Is that what he's saying? No, the rest of Scripture teaches us that the only way we get to see the Lord is by the grace of Jesus Christ. But if we've experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, it inevitably leads us to want to be personally dedicated to his interests. So these things work together. It's not either or, it's a... It's a both and. This is the will of God, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So here's what's interesting. 
Isn't it interesting here? He's going, God's will for you, the thing that God wants for you more than anything is to be personally dedicated to his interests. And then what would you expect him to go into? Therefore, fast. Abstain from food and and focus on how he's better than life. Would you expect him to focus on, you know, so read your Bible, so pray, so love one another, so do these things, right? What would you expect? And what's the first thing that he focuses on here? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, next week, he will get into this idea of love and that we're to love one another and that the love that we display to one another uh, is attractive and impacts the way that outsiders view us. But it's interesting that he goes to that. Uh, We don't know exactly why. Perhaps the Thessalonians were were caught up in some particular uh, sexual sin. We don't know that. That could be why he says this. But here's what he says. This is God's will, your sanctification. Then this first example, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality here is the Greek word pornea. That sound like anything we know about? And it's simply the idea of uh, any kind of sexual relationship that is outside the covenant of marriage. That's what it's talking about. So you can fill in the blanks in terms of what exactly that means. Uh, most often this has with it the idea of adultery or of, uh, you know, picture an angry Baptist preacher now, or fornication. Right, or I mean, just whatever. This is what it's talking about, sexual immorality. This, this word's used all over the place to describe any kind of sin that's inappropriately sexual, that's taking place outside of the confines of marriage. Paul writes about this uh, elsewhere. In uh, Ephesians 5, verse 3, he says this, But sexual immorality, same word, in all impurity or covetousness, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Here's what's interesting. What this is fundamentally about is not the act of sexual immorality or the act of adultery. This is about purity. Holiness is fundamentally about purity, about having more and more of your interests purely dedicated to the Lord. And so sexual immorality and impurity are linked. He links it again in Colossians chapter 3, kind of a sister book of Ephesians. It says this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're you're in Christ. You've trusted Christ by faith. You're with him. You've died to your sin, is what he's saying. Your life is now united to Christ. Verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Again, this, there's this strong link that Paul has in his mind between sexual immorality and impurity. Which is to say that when we talk about sexual immorality, we're not just talking about adultery. We're not just talking about sex outside of marriage. We're talking about impurity as well. Therefore, this whole idea is very consistent with what we studied just a number of weeks ago uh, in Matthew chapter 5, one of the hard sayings of Jesus that we looked at when Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we don't get a pass here. Just because maybe you've never done the actual act of adultery. Now, some of you have done that act. You know the scars and the pain and the consequence that came with that. And I hope you know that there's forgiveness for that in Jesus. It's not an unforgivable sin, but it is a serious sin. 
And for those of you who are on a path towards it, let me just tell you, where does the path begin? In the heart. It's allowing the impure thoughts, the second looks, the additional dwelling, all those things that we talked about a number of weeks ago. It's, it's, it's allowing that to take root in your heart. He says, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Then here's how he describes this, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness, same word again, and honor. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Verse 4 says that each of you would know how to control his own body. That word control is a word that means possess. It's the idea of like when you think of a demon-possessed person, uh, what do you see about them? They don't have control, right? The demon is taking control of their life. The demon is, in a sense, living out through them because they don't have self-control. They don't have self-possession. He's saying possess yourself. Control your own body. These urges that you have, these drives that you have, don't give in to the thought that, well, it's only natural. And it wouldn't be there if, if God didn't want it to be there. And therefore, I should just go with it because God's given me these feelings. He says, no, 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 no. Here's God's will. Make no confusion about it. This is one of the biggest lies, and Christians fall into it all over the place, not just sexually, is God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Did you notice what it doesn't say in verse 3? For this is the will of God, your happiness. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. And here's why. is because God knows that true happiness will be there. That is the better life. That is the better way. And so we're to have self-control. We're to possess our thoughts and our emotions and our bodies. Not, like, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. If you know the Lord, uh, what Paul's saying is, is we got to live like that. We've got to act like we, we know him. And then he says, verse 6, a serious warning here, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. In other words, if you go ahead and... and commit this act of sexual immorality or of adultery, you're sinning against somebody, not just the person you commit it with, but their spouse or their future spouse. He's saying, the Lord's an avenger in these things. The Lord notices that stuff. The Lord takes it seriously. Well, how does God avenge? That's an interesting question as we sort of study the Bible, right? If there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then how does God avenge sin committed by Christians? He's going to say in just a, a few uh, chapters, if you go to chapter 5, verse 9, he's going to say, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's not interested in pouring out wrath on Christians, and yet the Apostle Paul here says that the Lord's an avenger. There's, there's justice here for, for those who will commit these sins. It's a, it's a warning, isn't it? I mean, I think that's his point is, hey, don't do that. God's an avenger. 
Well, Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Purity Principle, he, he points out, I think, an interesting way in which the Lord avenges. I'm not saying this is the only way, uh, but, but here's, uh, here's the way that he puts it in his purity principle. He says this, uh, purity is always smart, impurity is always stupid. It's funny to think about it like that, isn't it? Like we always think, right or wrong, is that right or wrong? He's going, no, let's think about it in terms of smart and stupid. Hey, purity's always smart, impurity's always stupid. Not sometimes, not usually, always. Here's what he says. A holy God made the universe in such a way that, that what's true to his character and the laws derived from his character is always rewarded. What violates his character is always punished. He rewards every act of justice. He punishes every act of injustice. Now, this is key here. That doesn't mean that God always intervenes directly. This moral law is like the law of gravity. God has set it in place. When a careless driver speeds on an icy mountain pass, loses control, and plunges his car off a cliff, God doesn't suddenly invent gravity to punish the driver's carelessness. Gravity's already in place. In the same way, God does not need to punish the pornography addict for every wrong choice. The punishment is built into the sin. Shame, degradation, and warping of the personality follow as a matter of course. Scripture describes those who have surrendered to their lust to live in immorality as receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Do you get that idea? Is, is when we commit these kinds of acts, we, we are violating the very fabric of what it is to be human and made in God's image and how he made us. And so when we do these things, when we think this way, when we turn people into objects, when we live purely out of the passion of our lust, the punishment, one of them at least, is we just naturally become less human, if you will. We, we, we less represent how we're made to be. Alcorn continues. He says, that's the way God's moral universe operates. We get to choose our own path, but with each path comes inevitable consequences. The roads of life are sometimes hazardous, but God loves us enough to place warning signs. Don't commit adultery and no sex before marriage. We don't have to obey. We do have to live with the consequences. Purity is safe. Impurity is risky. Purity always helps us. Impurity always hurts us. Purity is always smart. Impurity is always stupid. Write it down. Bank on it. Amen? That's true, right? Now, that's true, but, but here's what I know. If impurity wasn't fun or enticing, you wouldn't do it. There's something, I mean... Like, that only takes you so far, right? I mean, I, I hope for a lot of you will go, yeah, that is stupid. Why would I do something stupid? I'm not going to do that anymore. Poof. Never have another lustful thought. Never take a second glance. I mean, I'm guessing that probably only takes you so far. Right, but I think that Alcorn makes a good point. But here's what, here's what we need, and this is something we talk about a lot here, and uh, I think it's really important, and we quote the title of this particular sermon. I'd encourage you to, to Google it if you can remember to write this down or something. Uh, Thomas Chalmers has this incredible sermon. If you can read uh, 16th century Puritan writing, you'll love it. And it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. I think if you get the title, you get the whole thing. The idea is that this lust, this desire that we have to fulfill ourselves, to be, um, to be 
happy, to be enjoyable, to be in control, whatever those things are that drive our impurities. Those generally don't just go away by sheer willpower. And even if they do, it's often pride and fear that we use to reinforce it in our heart and drive it out. What we need is the expulsive power of a new affection. The only thing that will expel it is something else coming in. What is that new affection going to be? Well, I hope that it will be Jesus. I hope that it will be this idea, as James McDonald says, that when God says don't, what he means is don't hurt yourself. That God is for you and that God is enough. That Jesus Christ said that he is the bread of life. He is the one to satisfy. And I know this is, a lot of this is review, right? If you were here a number of weeks ago, you go, I feel like I've heard this sermon before. You have. I'm just going to keep preaching it until we all start doing it. Not really. But we need help. And Tim Chester said this. I quoted this last time. We don't say to ourselves, I should not lust. We say, I don't need to lust because God is bigger and better. We believe that. We believe that when Jesus made us in his image, that he knew what we needed, that he knew that inside the covenant of marriage is the place where all of our sexual needs should and could be met. Would we trust him with that? But, but this principle, because he, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to kind of zoom out. Okay, We've zoomed in on the sexual stuff. Let's zoom out now. Because sometimes what happens is you focus so much on this one sin that you really struggle with that you forget all the other ones that you, know, you, you totally don't see. Right? So he's saying, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. This is God's will for you, is to, to be personally devoted to his desire. So, so just think in your own area of life, what is it for you that you would go, if there was just this one area of life for me that I could be more personally devoted to the interests of God, what would that be? Is it more patient in a particular set of relationships? Is it the ability to forgive this person that's hurt you in a serious way? Is it to just have an overall more loving and warm spirit? Is it to be kind to the people in your family, right? Some people are so nice to everyone else, but when they get home in the privacy of home, they're mean and rude. Is it to have self-control in a particular area? Or is it to be joyful in another way? Or thankful? I mean, you can think about all these things. I, I can't list everything that you might think of. You, you got that? You, you think of what it is? How do you overcome that? You overcome that by having a superior vision of Jesus, by seeing that, that, that to trust him is a better way to live. And here's the good news as well, is it says in verse 8, uh, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God has given us his Holy Spirit at the moment that we will trust Christ. Actually, it's his giving of the Holy Spirit that allows us to see that our sin is not just kind of bad behavior that everyone does and we should just get over it, but to see that God actually is holy and that we are impure and that the only thing that will bridge that gap is not effort, it's not resolving to be a good person, it's not church attendance, it's not giving money to charitable organizations, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. The only thing, right? We see God's holiness here, our impurity here. The only thing that bridges that gap is the cross. And it's the Holy Spirit that allows us to see that. 
But here's the thing. The, the longer we walk with the Lord, the, the more we realize that God's actually way holier than we thought, and we're actually way worse than we thought. And so God doesn't say, you know what? I gave you this cross. You better fill in all the rest of the gaps now with your effort. No, instead he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to allow you to, to see that Jesus is still your answer. And he's going to lead and direct you into truth. And in areas of, of sin and things that just aren't right, he's going to be there. And, and I'm going to call you to be filled with him. To live every day personally committed and, and, and dominated by him. It's interesting here, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, God's given the Holy Spirit to you. He's given you the very thing you need to be personally more devoted to him. Chances are you aren't being filled with him. Think about that idea of don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Paul was saying it a nice way. Do you know what he was saying? Don't get drunk with, the, with wine. Get drunk with the Spirit. Think about this. What is drunkenness? Drunkenness is you consume a lot. And it changes how you think. And there's a sense in which it, it controls you. It possesses you. you. Some of you are angrier than you would be if you were sober. Some of you are a lot nicer. Uh, you know. But the, and, and listen, the Scripture all around does not condone drunkenness. But he's using it as an analogy. He's saying, if you get to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to, to be dominated by the Holy Spirit, to have the Holy Spirit permeate every part of your life. So I'm going to use uh, my favorite illustration on this. Some of you know this. I, I, I love this. I use it every time. But to me, it's such, a, it's such a picture of what it is to strive for holiness. And the picture is this. When it comes to being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's the idea of chocolate milk. If you've heard this before. When you become a Christian, you, you see that, that Jesus is better and that Jesus is the only thing that can bridge that gap. And what happens is that God gives you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And it's a bit like if you have a, a, a tall glass of white chili milk. Right? Can you just picture it? Oh, doesn't that sound refreshing? You want to make chocolate milk so you get out your Hershey syrup. And, and the first thing you have to do to make the chocolate milk is put the syrup in, right? you got to go, all right, you squeeze it all in. The, the milk is now indwelt with the chocolate syrup, okay? And the point of faith, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. God goes, and he gives us himself into our life. But at that moment, do you have chocolate milk? What do you have? You have milk with a bunch of syrup at the bottom, right? And so in order to, to make chocolate milk, what you have to do is you have to stir it up. You have to stir it and stir it and stir it until the chocolate begins to permeate every part of the milk. And that's what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Is you, you allow the Spirit to be stirred up in you as you read God's Word and as you pray and as you serve others and as you give and as you sacrifice as you do all these different spiritual things, the reason we would do that is to allow God's Spirit to fill us, to permeate every part of our life, that, that we would be fully devoted, fully consecrated, fully sanctified. But here's what happens. 
Right? If you take that glass of milk and for whatever reason you get distracted, I don't know why you wouldn't just chug the thing, but, but say you don't, and you go, you know what, I'm going to save this for later, and you put it in the fridge, and maybe the next day you go back and you get it. What, what's the status of that glass of chocolate milk? Is it still chocolate milk? None of you have ever done this before. Good for you. Basically what it is, is it's, it's now dingy milk with most of the syrup has kind of coagulated back at the bottom. Right? And so in order to have chocolate milk again, you've got to stir it up again. Right? That's what the life of a Christian is. It's not to say, well, I went to church one day, I read the Bible one day, I listened to something that was inspiring one day, and now I have everything I need to live a life of increasing devotion to Jesus. <laughs> no, it's to say every day I need the Spirit to fill me again, to permeate me again. Every day I go back to his word. Every day I begin the day consecrating myself, saying, Lord, I am nothing. I am broken. The longer I walk with you, the more I see how bad I am. And I need, I need to fight to see the beauty of Jesus again today so that he'll be enough for me. So when that tempting situation comes or when I'm just inclined to react just in my own self-interest, I won't because I'll be filled with you. That's what it is to walk with him. That's what it is to pursue holiness. It's to be filled by his spirit. He's saying, back to 1 Thessalonians 4, if you disregard this, you're disregarding God. God has given you himself in the Holy Spirit. You disregard it, you disregard him. So what should we do? Well, it's pretty clear. We should control ourselves. We should possess ourselves. We should grow in likeness to Jesus. And here's the thing. I just want to encourage you. You don't have to conquer it all now. Get that? I mean, you ever read this book? You read all the things that God would expect you to do. And you come here, and you hear me preach every week, and you're like, I just think this is so overwhelming. Where do I begin? I, I got my whole life that I feel like i got to put back together. Where do, listen, it's not this moment. It all has to be fixed. It's one step at a time. One day at a time of seeing that Jesus is better, of walking by the Spirit. It's like when I was in college, we used to run stadium steps uh, at the University of Illinois, and, and we would kind of go up the bleachers. And you would stand there at the bottom, and you would look at this giant stadium of bleachers, and you go, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And the only way to do it, if you tried to look ahead, you would inevitably face plant. <laughs> Because you would reach for a bleacher and you'd fall short and you'd you know, wipe out. And we had some guys do that. The way you had to do it was you had to look at the next step. The next step. The next step. And that's what this is. Holiness is one righteous choice at a time. One God-honoring choice at a time. One choice at a time that says Jesus is better. If you feel like you've got to climb the mountain today all in one big step You'll never get there. But it's one righteous choice at a time. I uh, really appreciate this, uh, this quote by Jerry Bridges. Um, he, I'll read this kind of extended thing. This is from his book on the pursuit of holiness. And he basically says, maybe we should just scrap this whole talk of victory over sin. 
and change it with calling it obedience. Here's what he says. It's time for us Christians to face up to our responsibility for holiness. Too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated. We are simply disobedient. Might be good if we stopped using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress and holiness. Rather, we should use terms, use the terms obedience and disobedience. When I say I'm defeated by some sin, I'm unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I'm saying something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I'm disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may, in fact, be defeated, but the reason we are defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. We have chosen to entertain lustful thoughts or to harbor resentment or to shade the truth a little. We need to brace ourselves up and realize that we are responsible for our thoughts, actions, and attitudes. We need to reckon on the fact that we died to sin's reign, that it no longer has any dominion over us, that God has united us with the risen Christ and all his power and given us the Holy Spirit to work in us. Only as we accept our responsibility and appropriate God's provisions will we make any progress in our pursuit of holiness. Here's what he's saying. we got to own up to this. we got to say, yes, I'm the problem here. And you know why we don't want to do that? Because we're religious. So we think that our standing before God or the way we feel about ourselves is based on the fact that we're good. Listen, when we admit that we're disobedient, that's the way we begin to enjoy the gospel. The gospel is only for disobedient people. So as soon as we go, well, I'm defeated, and it's, just, it's not really my fault, and I just can't help it. What you're denying yourself is the opportunity for the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to come in and to change you. Let's own up to the fact. Let's brace ourselves and let's realize that it's not about victory and defeat. It's about one step of obedience at a time. So I love this by Tim Chester. He says, victory is not a life without temptation. Victory is struggling with temptation and consistently choosing obedience because you trust that Jesus is better. That's what it is. Do you trust that Jesus is better and holding on to your bitterness and your anger? Do you trust that Jesus is better than trying to protect your reputation by telling little white lies? Do you trust that Jesus is better? That his approval of you is more significant than the approval of all these people that you're trying to impress? Isn't it amazing how much time we spend trying to impress people we don't even like? The Lord's approval trumps all that. It's enough. It's better. Victory is struggling with temptation, consistently choosing obedience because you trust that he's better. Um, I'm going to pray here in just a moment, but I do want to just direct your attention to the connection card. Um, If there are uh, particular areas that you want prayer for as you struggle with sin, as you pursue holiness, uh, if you would like to talk with somebody about any of those things, we would be happy to encourage you in that. So please, on the back of that card, uh, mark anything there that's appropriate or give us something to pray about. We'd love to pray for you this week. And uh, make sure you drop that in the baskets or in the mailboxes um, as you leave here this morning. Uh, Let me pray and then I'll give you a moment to, to fill that out if you want. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us, that you are faithful. God, thank you that you know uh, that sin is bad for us, that it hurts us. Thank you that you've given us yourself and the Holy Spirit so that we could walk faithfully each day 
in a way that honors you and brings you glory, that shows that you're better. God, I pray that we could do that. I pray that um, we'd be encouraged even this morning that holiness is about one righteous decision at a time. It's not about perfection. It's not about conquering it all now. But it's about one step. And God, I pray for each person here that we would have a sense of just one step of obedience we could take even today. Choosing that you're better. So we pray for that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is this uh, season of Advent. And so we're going to celebrate uh, Advent together. And again, this means uh, coming. This means hope. I don't know if I mentioned this at the beginning. I meant to. Um, but part of the reason why these trees aren't decorated is because uh, the idea of Advent is building anticipation. It's saying each week we want to get more and more excited about the Lord's coming. And here's how we typically do it, don't we? We kind of go like, like, get all the lights up, get all the stuff out. And, like, and I love that. I mean, like I, I'm hoping to decorate some things in our house this week and to do that. But what happens is we, we kind of do it all in one shot that by the time Christmas comes, we're like sick of it. And so we want to build anticipation. So each week you'll see these trees will get progressively more and more decorated as a way to anticipate visually the coming of the Lord. But one of the things that we'll do each week is we will uh, have a responsive reading from the scripture and then we'll light uh, one of the Advent candles. And each week of these Advent candles means a different thing. Uh, This first uh, week, this first candle has the idea of hope and expectation. And so uh, we're going to have this responsive reading here together. From Psalm chapter 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Your turn. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. That's Jesus. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. All together, we light this candle as a symbol of expectation. May the light sent from God shine in the darkness to show us the way to salvation. In addition to celebrating Advent, we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. 